Well, we'll get in our study. Let's pray. Father, so many things in and around our life that are they're distracting and can definitely tear us away from our consistency with you. We ask that you would put a healing hand on Michelle and the issues that are there that have to be dealt with. We ask that when the surgery does come, that it will be very successful, complete the work that is needed, and the continuance of her ministry in life and, and just her ministry in life to Steve will continue. We ask that you would give Levon great strength, stability, that she can actually return to her assisted living facility, that she can continue to enjoy that aspect of, of life. We raise Virginia up to you that she may be able to go home today and be able to be strengthened and continually moved along. We ask that you would comfort the family and encourage Wendell as his last days are yet still close and that we, you would give the family strength and comfort to go through this time period at the same time we ask that you would minister to Wes, that his body would respond correctly, that he would be able to swallow and function as normal as possible. But you again ask that you would be honored and glorified in all these things that we go through, that we give you consistent praise. We rejoice always, we pray continually, and we are thankful for you in all circumstances. God, continually care for us. We seek you for all things in Jesus. Amen. Guess what? You knew it. I'm here again. <laughs> With everything that Job was going through, I thought it only important to say, well, do you need me to do another? And he was very thankful. We've got a lot going on. and So, guess what book we're going to be in? Mark, excellent. Go to Mark chapter 8. We're going a little further. Again, it's the I'm going through sections that don't seem to come off the page as simply as possible. This morning, the context will be critical to understand so that we will better understand the final text that we want to slow down to. So really, we're going to do a ton of reading this morning. We'll take up the first two sections, comment on them quickly. But we'll stay longer in the final section to learn the truths we need for our daily lives. But we want to take a look at this whole area. Let's go to Mark chapter 8. We'll start with verse 1 through 10. And I'm actually going to periodically pick up our parallel text in Matthew because Matthew adds a little bit more angle and direction to it. Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through 10. In those days, talking about the area of Decapolis, a Gentile area, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can we feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, Well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. 
And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Delmanutha, somewhere between Magdalena and Capernaum. All right, let's take a look at this just quickly. In those days, now this is interesting, this is our second feeding, so keep that in mind. First feeding was 5,000. Notice, too, something that you're missing. That was a primarily Jewish area. This is in the Ten City area on the other side of the Jordan, and it's predominantly Gentile. Notice the shift here. Notice the, the issues that are going on. Again, Jesus has compassion on the crowd, but the thing that I like the most, and notice too, when there's specific words or specific statements brought up in Scripture, hone in on it. Stop and go, why? Ask the question. Why in the world does Mark say they were there for three days? Interesting. Think about why you would want to be at a place listening to somebody for three days. Why would you be there? Eagerness to understand, eagerness to learn, definitely respecting the speaker. Information that you desperately want to hear and you regard the individual high enough to stay for three days. It's not like these people kind of like came and went or there was a nice hotel to stay at. They were there for three days being taught by Jesus. So again, that shows their eagerness to want to know, to hear, to understand. My question then when I come away from something is, how eager am I to hear the word preached? Will I go for convenience or will I go, no matter how long it takes, I want to be there to be under the teaching of the word. I want to hear. Notice too that he is compassionate he's deep now the word compassion doesn't really play very well but the understanding it's it's down it's it's a gut-wrenching feeling it's it's tight it's deep it's not the fact he has concern he has compassion there's a big difference between concern and compassion right you can be concerned with someone that's nice too bad okay pat them on the head and they go compassion means you're locked in you're going to stay there's deepness there so he does ask the apostles another good question, but again, you think about it, they've already seen the feeding of the 5,000. Let's see if they retain any of that. And he asks them, how can one feed these people with bread here in the desolate place? Desolate meaning it's not highly populated. There's not a great amount of food and availability for food in the area. They say seven, Okay. So you've got numbers, very specific, what they have. So you've got 4,000 people and seven loaves. You divide that thing up, how many little pieces are you going to have? Remember communion on Sunday? That's your meal, one little piece. You think about it. Now, seven's not going to do it, right? But I love it. Bread, multiplied, handed to the disciples. 
they hand it to everyone else. Guys come back, get more. 4,000 people plus women and children. What's passed through their hands? A little bread or a lot of bread? A lot of breads. They've seen so much. And you've got the small fish again. Probably a little sardine option or whatever. They're passing this out too. I love it. Verse 8. And they ate and were, big words, satisfied. Does God only just barely take care of you? No, to the point of satisfaction. Meeting your needs. Not some of your needs. Meeting the needs that you have. He understands. He is compassionate. And look what's left over. All right, let me ask you a question. How many do we have left over on the 5,000? Twelve. Twelve, okay. How many disciples do we have? Who's getting the message? The disciples, okay, you got that. We have how many baskets? Full. Seven. Plenty? Yes. For 4,000 people, there's extra. Perfect number. Perfect number? True. There's a lot of numerology that goes on sometimes in this. I couldn't really, I was not comfortable to bring in his teaching, but some have said that seven, which I'm still going to have to dig in, seven is the number of the Gentiles. Now, there's some really weird texts they come up with, and I'm like, I'm not comfortable going in that direction. But there is a significance to seven. Maybe I'll come back and I'll explain it one day when I understand it. But Guess what they do after they feed? Send the people away. What do they do again? Same thing as the first time of the feeding. What do they do? Get in the boat. Go on the other side. Okay, so let's go to the next section. Interesting pieces here that you get. Now, this is all feeding into our final understanding. So let's keep that in mind. You have the feeding of the multitude, the crowd, here again with limited food to start with. And they were all filled to satisfaction, and there's excess, and there's plenty there. So now we get a different piece. Let's go to verse 11 and 12. Next event that occurs is the Pharisees came and began to argue, underscore argue, with Jesus. Seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Interesting pieces here. They come up, argue with Jesus, and what are they doing? I don't believe you're the Messiah. What have they seen? Much. What have they heard? Much. Is the evidence there? Absolutely. Could it be held up on a court of law? Yes, it could. But they want a sign now from God to prove that he is the Messiah. It's almost about as sick as you can get. And of course... I love the, the statement that says he sighed deeply in his spirit. That's just not the uh, kind of sigh. This is painful anguish. An anger on the inside of the fact of saying that their absolute ignorance and denial of him, still with all the evidence, they want more. And Jesus goes, no, you're not getting it. Hold your finger in Mark 8. Let's go to Matthew 16, 1 through 4. just want to give you the parallel 
to give a little bit of more of the information, you notice too that Mark starts out and says the Pharisees came. Sometimes you want to combine some of the gospel text to actually get a little bit more of the picture, some more detail of someone else's understanding and visual into what occurred. Matthew 16, 1 and 4, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Notice we have Pharisees and what's the other group? I love this. These guys are diametrically opposed to each other. They think differently. They have a different theological background. They come from complete different angles. But you notice, too, that they are very unified in one thing. And he answered them, and I love this, love this statement. When it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Oh, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. I think that last part, left him and departed, it's got to be the most empty statement that could ever be in the fact that it just sucks life out of everything. Here the Messiah, God himself, is before them, they reject him, and he leaves. That's the life-giving Messiah. They reject him. I love Jesus' reply, though. You can tell the weather. And these, remember, when we studied it, how much scripture do these guys have? They've got all the scripture necessary to point very clearly that this is the Messiah, no, no doubt. And they can't even see it, but they can tell the weather. Who cares? They did not come really desiring to know Jesus as being the Messiah, but doubted everything about him, no matter the truth and the evidence. They were all witnesses to many of the teachings and miracles that Jesus presented to them at the same time they had a lot of stories they understood, they heard. They even had evidence inside their own counsels and the proof. Remember the blind guy? I love that. That's one of the best stories. I love it. He really didn't know who actually healed him, and he goes and they're, they like drag them in to find out who it was, drag mom and dad in. Mal and dad are in the, in the front of the council, and they're like, well, is this your son, and was he born blind? And they're like, woo, 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 I'm out of here. Uh, don't want to get in trouble here. Uh, he's an adult. You deal with him. We're over here. Okay? You remember that scene. I love the, his statement. He goes through exactly, and they keep pushing on him. This guy's been blind. And they push him that he sees now. And he even gets to the aggravated level on a point and says what? Do you want to be Jesus' follower too? Well, that ticked him off even beyond anything else. But again, was that evidence standing in front of them that Jesus has God's healing power? Yes. 
Jesus was very clear in Matthew's text that they were able to tell weather, the atmospheric issues, but they can't even tell from the scripture that they had memorized as children. They didn't even know it. So let's look at our final section. I'll spend a little bit more real estate time in there. Mark 8, verse 13 through 21. Verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive for understanding? And are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Again, hold your finger in eight. Go to Matthew 16. Get Matthew's parallel section starting in verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now notice too, where Mark says Pharisees and Herod or Herodians, here Matthew expands it to help us to understand there's quite a group there. It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay, so again, in your study of the word, keep your parallel texts together as they keep going because you're going to get a more full understanding view of what's occurring. It's not that anything that's missing is bad, okay? You and I both know that all of us will observe one single event and we'll all come up with different pieces because it triggers different in our thinking. So, it's not that missing is bad, it's just missing is missing. And you use the other text to fill it in. Verse 7, and they began discussing among themselves, loved the scene, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves and the 5,000, how many baskets gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets did you gather? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I love it. Now let's get into it. Mark 8, verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. This is where my brain kicks in. I'm sorry. It's just the way I work. Very interesting point that they had only one loaf of bread. My question is, where are the seven baskets? <laughs> one loaf. Either they pigged out Hardy on those things and had all seven baskets, they're a little lonesome, and one was left, or... I don't know, it's just too much speculation, but I'm, I'm asking myself, okay, one loaf. Where did you think you were going? 
with your one loaf. How many are you feeding with your one loaf? Thirteen. <laughs> Got you right. You were going, oh yeah, Jesus has got to eat. Mm-hmm. Not really. Not really. That's true. <laughs> Man shall not live by bread alone, but by... Every word. Right, keep that in mind, too. That's a good... Because that's a reminder. Anytime you pop bread up, an issue of bread, that's always where you're going to go back to. At least you should. You understand, too, that when these Jews are going back and they're thinking about bread, what are they going all the way back to? The wilderness. Wandering in the wilderness, what did God make sure? We've said it before. They've always got food. They've always got the bread. They've got their manna. They've got their quail. They didn't like all that stuff because they had too much and they couldn't stand it, whatever, after a while. I'm not that, I know, I've got a friend in California. He cannot eat at the same place the same meal within two days. So if we go have a burger on one day, you don't go and have a burger on the second day. He doesn't do that. I'm fine. Give me burgers straight through, especially if it's an In-N-Out burger. I'll have them seven days a week. And then I'll be starting up the next week again with seven more burgers. I don't have any problem with that. But bread, manna, shoes don't wear out, your feet don't swell up. I love that when I was reading that through in, in the book in Genesis and everything to understand what was going on. Or in Exodus, Genesis, Exodus. And the interesting thing, too, what else didn't wear out? Their clothing. I'm fine with that, too. Same shirt, just making sure it's clean. I'm good for the rest of the week. Other people are going, did you wash that? No, no, no. We wear that. <laughs> Remember, all that they've seen concerning loaves of bread, who cares about one stinking solitary loaf? Who do you have in the boat with you? Jesus. What did he just show you twice? He can make bread. Does he need bread to make bread? Well, we know, no, of course not. So now Jesus uses this as a teaching time. Again, this is the rabbi's mind. I'm teaching these men these deep truths. We've got to get them past that front, front deal. I got a loaf of bread. Good for you, Buck. I don't understand, but so what? Verse 15, and he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and, and the leaven of Herod. So we're looking at the Pharisees and the Herodians, and Matthew adds again the Sadducees. Pretty good sized group. Three distinct groups opposed to each other. Kind of reading about the Sadducees, the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection, but the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection and did not even believe in angels. They basically don't believe in angels, miracles, anything like that. didn't really make any difference to them. But you notice, too, through Scripture, we see these three groups very unified in the elimination of Jesus. You think about each other's groups, their thinking, their theology is completely contrast to each other. But they're intent on one thing, kill Jesus. There were many times that the Pharisees worked hard to trick Jesus through, through crafted questions. I read a couple this morning in my Bible reading in Matthew that would put him to a bind that he'll either be discredited by the religious leaders or discredited by the people. They tried to craft him that way. So no matter which direction he went, he was caught. I love the one in Matthew 22. Verse 15 then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Notice that. 
They're going to try to trip him up. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians. Herodians were really weirdos, okay? You actually really don't see them until Mark 3. It's really where they start showing up. These are people who really believe that they wanted Herod to be the returning king of Israel and everything. They've got a lot of strange thinking. They were mixtures. They liked the idea of the Roman world at the same time, too. They wanted their Jewish, so they kind of were blenders. They kind of didn't really have a solitary mindset with the Jews. They were kind of like blending whatever good for the culture kind of deal. So they were supporters of Herod. Who's the Herod that's in in power at this time right now? Do you guys remember Herod? Antipas. Okay. You're going to see Herod quite a few times. You know Herod because he is the one who had who beheaded. (laughs) Trick. John the Baptist. All right. Where else do you see him? Probably the next big scene. At the trial of... You guys need to be reading the Bible more often, okay? So they ask the question, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, okay? Once you guys believe it yourself. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. I love that. Hmm. Tell us then what you think, if it's your opinion. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Ah, we're going to get you on this one because, man, you go Caesar, we're going to go, oh, yeah, you're going to go for it. Oh, no, we're going to grab you. I love it. <laughs> Sorry. Every single time it's Jesus and I see the Pharisees show up, I go, ooh, get ready to watch a show. It's going to be good. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Ooh. Show me the coin for the tax. Okay, love the picture here. And they brought him a Daenerys. And Jesus said to them, holding it up, whose likeness and inscription is this? What do they say? It's Caesar's. Fine. Then he said to them, therefore render Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard that, they marveled. And they left him and went away. Did the trickery work? Nope. Interesting. Another time, too, besides the fact they're trying to trick him, they're always in the mindset to want to kill him. John 11.53 says the Pharisees and Sadducees worked together to kill Jesus. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Enemies working together against their arch enemy, Jesus. Herod also noted as planning to find a way to kill Jesus, Luke 3.31 says, And that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him, to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Interesting. After Jesus' statement, as we go back to Mark 8.16, And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Hmm. <laughs> Here the disciples go a little bit off track and think that Jesus is really talking about the fact that they've only got one loaf of bread to feed 13. Let's look at what the evidence these men should have to show them that even talking about the lack of bread is really stupid. 
There's no basis for this kind of thinking. And what have they just witnessed again? Feeding of a crowd with not a lot. They have seen more than 5,000 people fed with bread and fish. Now have seen more than 4,000 people fed again with bread and fish. He fed a huge crowd with a single person's lunch. And these men have seen the feedings and were given full evidence that Jesus fed everyone with very little. They were fed to satisfaction. This is the statement that keeps coming up. So what's happening to these men? I'd kind of conjecture to think these are the exact same things that happened to us. They see the work of God firsthand. And they do not take it deep into their lives to build deeply the understanding. They only see the work of God on the surface, but no further. You know, we do the same thing, don't we? When we see the work of God in our lives and in others, and we don't take it deep. We have the whole of creation around us screaming the work of God. And our response is what Paul said, Romans 1.18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It doesn't take a philosopher to grasp it. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Do the apostles have access to this too? Yes. Do you and I have access to this? Yes. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise, like the Pharisees, Sadducees, and all the religious leaders. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God with the images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. So how does this come back to us? I ask the question, what about you? You have something that hits your life, big and catastrophic. It's beyond anything that you've ever experienced before and it's the most intense event ever. What do you do? Do you have the knowledge of the Creator God moving through your thoughts, knowing that He can do all things, even comfort you? You have all the evidence you could ever, ever need, but you panic and fret. Anxiety kicks in, as if you never knew God or if He could do anything about the situation. I talk to a lot of people that talk about all their anxiety, their issues, their frustration, their stress and everything. Who are you not looking at? Who are you not looking to? Be anxious for nothing comes to my mind. Jesus did not even need the one loaf to feed them, but it was there. And it was more than plenty for them. But no, Jesus is not talking about the fact that they brought only one loaf of bread. It's getting deeper. It's a serious issue. You know, we do tend to do that. We tend to 
not take what we study, what we learn, what we hear from the scriptures and the truth of the word. We don't take it deep enough to actually become part of our life and it flows through. We tend to just go on the surface, see something, but move on and never take it down deep to how it actually works and lives. How would you take the reality if you were there with the disciples and you saw the more than 5,000 fed with just a handful of a little kid's lunch? What would you do with it? Would you take it deeper? Would you meditate on it? Would you go to a deeper understanding on who is this? Ask yourself the question, who is this? They had the beginning statements when they were in the boat and they were convinced that they were going to die and that Jesus was asleep in the boat should give you a little bit of a clue anyway. But you think about what Jesus was doing. They wake him up kind of frustratingly. They wake him up. He stands. And again, they see the wind stop and the, the lake goes calm, flatline, level. And they ask the question, who is it that the wind and the waves obey? Take that one deeper then, people. Go further than just asking a question. Go further and start getting to the conclusion that this is God. But no, we tend to just go on the surface, and then when the big stuff comes up, that's going to expose really our heart and how deep we have an intimacy with God and the fact that we know Him and we know He can deal with anything, so I'm resting in Him. Verse 17 continues, And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? This is ridiculous, man. Do you not perceive for understanding? Have you not gotten further than just having it come into your head, but you've not drawn it down deep into your life? You know, when hard times hit, that exposes our walk with Jesus. Do you not believe that? Every single time something slams my life, what pops out is going to be an evidence to all of you of who I see Jesus as being and who I see him as being in my life. And he asks, are your hearts hardened? Are you incapable of perceiving spiritual things? Hmm. Sounds like the same question he did with the feeding of the 5,000. When he asked his disciples the same question. He asks, having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? Is there an issue here? Are you blind? Are you deaf? You're not able to receive these things? And do you not remember? Ah, oh, here's the good question. Now he's going to say, how deep did you guys take this? Did you take it to the front, or did you go deep down in? All right, let's see. Are these guys absolutely mindless or very forgetful? Jesus questions them again to drive them deep into their own lives to see why they had stopped at bread and didn't understand the leaven. Now let me stop for a second. Let's play with this word leaven. A show of hands, who has actually, from scratch, made bread? I love it. Now we're going to make some after church, right? Let's go do it. It's a little confusing because sometimes your translations use yeast, right? Sometimes they do that. Yeast is something that's a bit more of a modern piece. But leaven at the time was fermented dough that was kept in a small batch. Pretty much we today call it the batch for making sourdough bread. Okay, but it is the leaven of that day. And it was fermented. And it started brewing. It would basically set up. 
The issue with that leaven is you don't need a whole big wad of it. So you got your batch of dough and you want to get this thing to where it'll rise and be a little bit lighter and fluffier and everything. So you actually then mix this in. You're not mixing in a one-to-one ratio. It's a very small amount to a large amount of dough. And guess what? You work it in and it works throughout the whole batch of dough. And it affects every aspect of that dough to the point where it reacts and causes that rise. Without the leaven, the bread would be flat. Remember communion, matzah, okay, flatbread? That's it, folks. That's as far as you're going on that one. It takes very little leaven to permeate the whole batch of dough. In today's discussion, the amount of active brewer's yeast or yeast that you would need is a tablespoon and a half. Yes, tablespoon and a half, which is four and a half teaspoons, anybody who knows their conversions. It's a very small amount to produce two loaves of bread. A tiny little amount, whole thing affects the whole batch. That's what Jesus is trying to get across. This leaven that Jesus is referring to is the false teaching and the absolute denial of Jesus being the Messiah from the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians. Then I denied Jesus and asked for a more viable sign than from God in heaven without knowing that they were in the presence of the Creator God. So did the apostles know who he was. This kind of doubt breeds more doubt through a culture, through a group of people, it grows through a church. Now that's the big point. It's hard to even talk about this text and not look at myself in front of a mirror and just want to crawl away. Because the reality is, can a non-spiritual, non-spirit-driven life be corrupter of fellow believers in the church? Remember, Jesus, Peter, everybody is telling us and warning us that within inside the church is where the evil, where the corruption, where the leaven is going to show up. Now, if we see it occur on the outside, we expect it, we know it, we put the barriers up, we're okay, we've got it. We're not really triggering the fact that it's going to be somebody possibly in the pew next to it, or yourself. Can you be a corrupting agent in the body of Christ? Yes. How do you keep from that? Stay in the Word. Let it go deep into your life, not some surface thing up in your noggin. Take it deep. You notice, too, that Jesus did ask them, do you have eyes to hear? Do you, and he can also ask us the same question. Do you see what's around you? Do you hear? How many times are we deaf to the voice of God? We've talked about this in the past. This gets to be hard. How come we don't hear the voice of God in our life? We've talked about it before. Distractions. Always taking us off course. We talked in the past about those distractions that keep us from hearing the voice of God. Why? The voice of God is not at the level of a large crowd on a football game. And you've been at those games. It's a still small voice where we must be silent to be able to hear. It's the quiet voice that forces us to stop and listen with a great effort and intent, like I started this morning. I went to a wedding Friday. It's another one of those Florida barn weddings. 
you know, which you just wonder what you need to wear for in this. And it's just, it just conjures up ranch to me. It's an interesting wedding. The ceremony itself was outside. Reception in the almost closed barn on one side. <laughs> the microphone for the official that presided over the wedding didn't work. And we're out in the elements. <laughs> it's amazing how much you hear out when you're out there and you're like, okay, shush, duck, be quiet. And it's hilarious. So the mic didn't work. So he's trying to do this. What are you, what are you going to be at a wedding? You're going to be sitting there having your conversation continuing on like people still do at church when the announcements. Never mind. They don't say that. Sidebar, do you guys understand that announcements are part of your worship service? Just checking. Okay, those are the opportunities that are laid before you so you can actually be moved by God to actually fill the needs of the church and hear the things that you can be involved. Is this new to you that you've never known that announcements are part of worship? It is. And let me explain this. When you walk through those doors, you're entering to worship. When you leave, you leave to what? Serve. Serve. Right, brother, that's exactly it. So without the amplification, we needed to be able to be silent to hear him. It's amazing while people are chattering along and everything going on and having the little discussions the minute and realizing we can't hear him. Everybody went dead silent. It was amazing. We had to work hard to hear him. We wanted to hear him. We didn't speak a word. We were in silence. And we did hear. Now that's the key. How many times are you silent before the Lord? I said in previous weeks. It probably, if, if someone says, you know, can you just pray for five minutes? Nope. Useless. All right, ten. Nope. Useless. All right, fifteen. <laughs> Close. Nope. Useless. 20. All right, I got five. What are you talking about? It's probably going to take 15 minutes for me in prayer and time with the Lord to actually get this mind and everything going into it at 102,000 miles or whatever it is in my life to shut down, be quiet, shut up so I can hear the Lord. So I got a five-minute prayer out of a 20-minute session. I think you might be the same way. It's hard for us to be quiet. It's hard for us to be silent. You are not going to hear God say a thing to you in the middle of your chaos and all your distractions. So before you go to Jesus, turn off your phone. Why? It's a distraction. It'll pull you away. So we continue in verse 19. Jesus goes deeper in queries and go, well, do we at least have the basic knowledge? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? What's their reply? Twelve. Good, good, guys. Good. Well, I got some memory going on here. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Ah, and their reply, seven. All right, so it's not a mind issue. It's not a mental issue. We haven't gone brain dead. These guys were there. Ah, evidence. And they were what? Aware enough to know that there's a count going on, and they had something that, and they themselves were the ones who picked it up. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Is that far as you've gotten with this thing? Is on the surface? You wonder why God's not moving stuff in your life? 
Do you take things deep to go down to make the understanding, to make it become part of you? So this brings up our final point. These men all remembered the details, but they forgot the application. Again, I, I love the statement. I, I love it, but I cringe because of it. MacArthur always had that statement that someone comes into church with a little thimble. I know a lot of us aren't seamstresses and all that. Thimble was so when you're actually pulling the needle through, you don't prick your finger. You remember those days where you pricked your finger and you put the thimble on. And he says they come in to the message, the word, and they get the little filled up. It's small. And on the way out, they trip and that's all they've got for the week. Is that the same with you? Do you come in with your thimble, fill it, trip, and there's nothing left? Or do you come to receive the word of God that it be what? Planted deeply. Then exactly how it happened, who performed the miracle. What they did not take was the fact they didn't take it deep inside their life. They did not work to apply the truth to their actual lives. It was an external event that stayed external. Is the sermon this morning going to stay external with you? Is this going to stay external with you? Your time in the Word, is it going to stay external? It takes work to drive it deep. What you're shoving out is the junk of this world and you're implanting inside your life the vibrant Word of God. So do you come with your thimble and get it filled up and you spill it? And that's your week? We can do the same thing. We do not take the word given to us and work it through our lives. Do we have a daily time in the word not to check it off of a list, but to seek to learn from God all that can be learned? Don't raise your hand, but how many this year have started again the reading through the Bible in one year? Or have you ever read the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God, that which God had written for us, His communication to us? If you say no, then I'd have to ask you a question. What if I sent you a three-page letter, email, whatever? Would you read maybe the first paragraph? Well, if you don't read the whole of the Word and get all the counsel of God, then you're just going to read that first paragraph, and that's enough for you. But you're not getting the meat of what's going on. You're not going to get everything that I was trying to say to you. Do we stay there long enough to take in throughout the day in our lives? Do we stay and meditate and chew and hold the Word? Do we ask the Holy Spirit to teach us? Not for someone else, but for us. I have to always check myself. I get and I hear the message and I go, Whoo, that would be really good for so-and-so. Well, who's the so-and-so I should be pointing to? Me. Sunday after Sunday to be drenched in the teaching of the words so that it will change us. 
not be just information. That's the danger. If it just becomes information, then we become puffed up, we become arrogant, and we just look at everything that I know. I don't really care what you know. I just want to know how it's moving inside of you and changing you. We can do the same thing when we see God working with the details in our lives, but we don't keep it and apply it to our daily living. We hear of great things in the Bible, but we don't see Him doing anything with the same power in our lives, nor do we seek His work in our lives. We even hear of the many things that God is doing in other believers, but we don't even venture to look to see Him doing the same thing in us. That's when you keep it external. When it doesn't come into your life and absolutely transform and move you and jettison you along. No. It had nothing to do with bread or the making or the giving of bread. It had to do with Jesus, the Messiah, the Creator God. We end as we did last week. Do we only see the man, Jesus, and not the Creator God before us? He is God. He is to be worshipped as God and nothing else. So in any opportunity that you have, intently listen to the Word, the teaching of the Word, and take it down deep and say, God, make this thing change me. Transform me. Romans 12, 2, that is what? The transforming work, the renewing of your mind. That takes work, that takes time, but that takes absorption down deep. It doesn't bounce off the eardrum and just, that's it. How do we go before God to know Him more? By being in His Word, by hearing the teaching of the Word. Then we won't be shocked when all of a sudden we're more concerned about bread when you're standing right next to the Creator who created all things, sustains all things. We can be so distracted in our life. We can be so taken away by the externals and everything else bombarding against us. But do we stop long enough to stay? No, I'm staying on Jesus. I'm staying right here. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm very thankful that the scripture shows sometimes the ridiculous thinking of the apostles. So it helps me to see my same ridiculous thinking. I love the scripture because it exposes the junk in my life. But I want to go beyond that and let God take that junk and then transform that part of my life into something that's valuable and worthwhile and amazing. So let me challenge you this. If you've never read through the Bible, do so. I'm using D.A. Carson's Daily, which has been great. There's two volumes of it. He helps you in the, the page that he has for the day. He gives you an insight into some theology, takes you deeper into the text, takes you, takes you into some understanding, some good application. Then you read four different chapters in four different books. So you're basically 
in a quad movement moving right across Old Testament, two books, New Testament, two books. And it's been invaluable. Not only am I grinding a little deeper with some theological understanding, some deep understanding of what God and what the text is trying to do, but at the same time, too, I'm filling up. You want to understand, too, about the strangeness of what's going on with Jesus and the Pharisees and everything, go take a look at Matthew 23 where he actually has a very strong indictment against them at all these different levels and calls them hypocrites and nails them for the junk that they're playing with. They're all external. Calls them hypocrites. Fake fronts. Because God never went real for them and deep. So get in His Word. Take notes in any message you hear. Keep the word, grab the word, and deeply implant the word down deep inside of you so it changes you. It's hard. But the most beautiful thing is that's what Jesus wants to do, spend time with us and grow us. He only had three years with the guys. Did they get it? Yeah, if you go a little bit further in Mark, Peter does get it for a little short period of time, didn't he? And then right around, bink, he was right messed up. That sounds so much like us. So again, be careful of the fact of 11, the doubt, the false teaching, the junk. Can you be 11 in amongst the believers? Yes, Guard yourself. Watch out. Look. Stay in the Word. Stay strong in the Word in the relationship with God. Make it deep always in your life. Leaven is dangerous. What's the old adage? A little leaven leavens up the whole lump. So check the leaven. Check your heart. And get rid of any leaven that may be there. So you may be undefiled. Again, the biblical thinking of leaven at specific times, it's the fact it's sin. So if God bubbles up and shows you sin, you know what to do. Repent, turn from your sin, and then seek Him to fill you with the truth. Out leaven in truth. Let's pray. Father, there's no way that any of us could ever go through the text of Scripture and ever look at ourselves first. I have to look at myself through this text and see that there's from time to time been, seems like a ton of leaven in my life that is just corrupting and, and deteriorating and making everything, every bit of my life saturated by the junk. May I come to you continually and always seeking that you would expose the junk in my life and get that bubbled up. Show me the way out. I know you, through James, you reminded us that if we lack wisdom, we ask you. And the basic part about it is when we do ask you, you are not going to turn us away. You are not going to make anything with any picky decisions. You are going to fully take care of us and love us and grow us. But again, help us to never forget the fact that 
we don't want one single bit of leaven in our life. And thank you again for loving us and taking care of us and growing us. That we may know you more fully. And thank you for Jesus. For when he took my sins, past, present, and future, it was a complete work. It was completely done. And coming to him with a broken heart, he saved me. And surrounded me with his arms and his care. Help us to remember that, Father, that we will never forget. We may have the information, the data, and the statistics, but help us to take everything that you give us and drive it down deep in our life so it changes us. Again, thank you for your love, care, and compassion for us, and we so desire to know you more intimately each and every day. But thank you. In Jesus Christ, amen.